just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and to worship you. We ask that you look, guide us as we look at your word and, and see what you'd have us to see. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 11, starting at verse 22. Then did the cherubims lift up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord, a glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain, which was on the east side of the city. Afterwards, the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to them that were captive. So the vision that I had seen went up from me. Then I spoke unto them of the captivity, all the things that the Lord had shown me. All right, so we want to look at this and remember the very beginning, he starts out in Babylon on the sides of the river and he's taken up in the spirit. And for the last basically 11 chapters <laughs> has been this big vision. And we kind of lost track of that because it was quite a while ago that we started this vision. Matter of fact, Amy was still here before she went away for, for weeks when we started this vision. <laughs> so... And it starts with this, Then the cherubim lift up their wings, and the wheels beneath them, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them. And that goes back to the vision we saw at the very beginning of the cherubim with their wings touching, and the four faces that they have on their sides, and, and uh, all of that. And the glory of God was above them. And this is kind of an interesting thing, God's glory. And when it talks about glory, it has the idea of making heavy. Okay, make heavy with praise, make heavy with, with lifting up. This is what God means when he's using his glory. And then in verse 23, it says, The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. They're going into captivity. Ezekiel was, one of the first, was part of the first group of exiles. Israel has not been totally wiped out. Uh, we've got it. Their last king is still there, and he's getting ready to be taken into captivity. And uh, we're right at that point that we're going to hear the prophecy of him being taken. And, uh, but it says, The glory of the Lord lifted up off of Jerusalem. And for the Jews, this is a really big event. Because they have a very high opinion of Jerusalem. They still do to this day. But these, in this day, they believed that Jerusalem couldn't be taken, the temple couldn't be taken. There was a great confidence because it was God's temple and God's people and God's city that it would never be taken. And you see that if, if you read through Kings and Chronicles, you'll hear those kind of comments all through there. This is God's city. It's not going to be taken. It's not going to be, you know, this is what they're saying. And, this is, and God says, my glory has been taken up from the city. And this is something that would be a very scary thing for a church if God's glory departs from a church. Okay? And unfortunately, there are lots of churches out there where there is no glory of God on the church. And Ichabod has been ridden across the doors, not literally, but spiritually. And Ichabod means the glory has departed. Okay? And there are a lot of churches, especially in America and Europe, where the glory of God disappeared a long time. They're, they are Christian in name only in their church. And I have actually been to some churches where you, if God had shown up in those churches, he'd probably be kicked out because of where, where they're at spiritually. And this is what he said, his glory has lifted up. This is why Israel has fallen into judgment. They've gotten into idolatry and, and all these different things and they've forgotten God. And so God says, okay, it's time for this to go. Now his glory is lifted off Jerusalem and said, just take them. And unprotected. You're unprotected, no longer protected by God. Yes. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes them, takes them completely captive because his glory departs. And this is something that we want to be very sensitive to is we need to be praying for a revival on our country because we're dangerously close in our country to having God's glory depart from our country because of all the sin of this country. And we as Christians need to bow our knees and, and repent and pray for this country because it is in a very rough place at this point. Many places in Europe have no, no godly convictions whatsoever. But America is kind of sad because we used to be the country that sent out all the missionaries from 
America, and lately more countries are sending missionaries to America than are going out. We, we are now the foreign mission field for a lot of countries to come to. And that's a very sad thought process because it shows how far we have come down in this country from where we were. We still have a chance because we still have a little, you know, religion and a little bit of Christianity, much more than a lot of European countries do, but it's very quickly fading away. And we need to be, we need to be praying. I believe, I believe we're at the end times, but prayer would be the only thing that can turn uh, God's anger and wrath away from this country. And that would be for us to pray very much like Daniel did. Daniel's prayer was very interesting because Daniel was a very righteous, very honest man and man of integrity. And yet his prayer, and when we covered it many months ago about his prayer, he says, I, we... So many times when he's confessing the sins, and we know that it is not him who's the one that's been that way. But yet, we need to understand that we are part of this country, so we are part of the problem. If we're not evangelizing and bringing revival to this country, we are part of the problem in the sin of the country because we're not bringing people to God in a way that brings them into righteousness. So even though we may not be the ones participating in the sins that they do, we are still have a fault in it because of lack of revival and re evangelism. And we need to be praying for revival. This country's had three revivals already. And I don't know that there's going to be a fourth one, but I would like to think that maybe there will. I'm not counting on it, but I would love to see it. We had the first, first Great Awakening which just before it became a, became a nation, and it became very Christianized as it as it was pulled in. We had the Great Awakening in, in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, and it was a massive revival in this country and wake up. Then we had the Jesus Movement, which was a very big movement that most of us are, you know, many are in here are old enough to remember the Jesus Movement sweeping across the United States. Started with hippies, pretty much, and moved across the country in various places. And we saw revivals all over this country. And revival that brought people to Christ in a mighty way. And this is something we have to do. We have to lift God up. We have to lift Jesus up. Because he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So Jesus has to be lifted up. His word has to be lifted up. Not the petty doctrines, not the petty this and that, but Jesus. And let him be, coming, be lifted up so that revival can sweep through. I don't know if there will be another nationwide revival, but I want to see local revivals at different places. And I'd like to see chloride have a great revival in chloride and spread. Spread through this county. Spread through the state. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we can even influence California somehow. All right, verse 23, it talks about the glory of the Lord lifted off the city and it stood on the mountain of the east side of the city, which is where up toward the, above the temple on the east side of the city. So just so you know what that's referring, on the sides of the north and the city of the great king is talking about Jerusalem and the, and the sides of the mountain. And it says, then afterwards the spirit took me up and brought me in the vision by the spirit of God unto Chaldea and to them of the captivity. So in other words, he's saying I returned home. <laughs> The Spirit lifted him up and took him back. And then he shared what he, what he saw to those that were in captivity. Which brings us into chapter 12. And the word of the Lord also came unto me, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, which have see, eyes to see and see not, which have ears to hear and hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, you son of man, prepare your stuff for removing, and remove my day in their sight, and you, will, and you shall remove from the, your place unto another place in their sight, that they may... And it may be that they will consider, though they be a rebellious house. Then shall you bring forth your stuff by day in their sight as a stuff for removing. And you shall go forth at evening in their sight as they that do go forth in captivity. So let's look at what he's being told to do here. He's, he's being made into a picture. And God does this oftentimes with uh, different prophets. And Ezekiel gets to be a prophet that does this a lot. Okay, we're going to see him doing this kind of stuff a lot. But God tells him, you dwell in a house in the midst of the rebellious house. And this is Israel. 
Israel has been known to be rebellious, has been rebellious since all the way back. Became a nation. Abraham was righteous, but he did a lot of things, you know, quite a few things that were very questionable. Isaac, we don't have a whole lot about Isaac. Isaac is kind of stuck in there in the middle of things. We have one or two stories about Isaac, and that's all we hear about Isaac. Some of them are negative, but he's not really pictured as a strong person either. He's just kind of the, the bridge between Abraham and Jacob. <laughs> okay, if you just look at him, we, we, we find him getting his wife. And I think there's one other story in there that, that, if I, that I remember that he has. And then we go to Jacob. Okay, and we know that he loved, uh, he loved uh, Esau and, and his wife loved Jacob. And that's about all we know about, about, about him. And it's it just, he's, he's kind of the bridge to get to Jacob. Jacob is a very rebellious young man, you know, even older man. He's a, man, a conniver and a trickster and a manipulator. And he even makes an agreement with God that he said, you know, when, when he puts his head down on the, on the, rock and he gets the vision of God as he's going to see Laban and what does he tell what does he tell God if you will be my God and do the things you said you do then I will serve you okay uh, that was his attitude you know God if you're going to be honest I'll, I'll serve you and we find that he wasn't all that great a servant <laughs> in all in all in all that he did either so we see rebellion pretty much from the beginning of them then we get them into the Exodus, and we see nothing but rebellion from the time they get into the Exodus. They're griping and complaining right after seeing all the great miracles of God. They gripe that they are, you know, that God brought them out there to, you know, make them die of thirst because they're, they're they've gone the one day without without water, and they're going, oh, "You just brought us out here to die, die of thirst." And then they complained about food. Then, you know, they were always complaining, always doing wrong. At the, mount of, at the foot of Mount Sinai, they, they go to Moses and go, whatever God tells us to do, we will do. It's quite a bold statement when they don't even know what God's going to ask them to do. And then they, they start going into a riotous, idolatrous uh, relationships with each other while Moses is on the hill and he throws the Ten Commandments down and breaks them and, and punishes them, goes back up and then comes back down and they're going to not fulfill the law from that point forward. They're going to disobey and have all these problems that, that go on that uh, during the march from Sinai to the to the promised land and they're going to send the spies in and they're going to decide that they're well these spies the people are just too strong we can't take it and God said you know we're you you again sent us here to die okay this has been their refrain this is their refrain all through their time to the promised land God you just sent us out here to die there weren't enough graves in Egypt so you sent us out here to so that we could die out here. And this is their refrain over and over as they're being disobedient. We get them into their, their land. We go through all the judges where they where we have this cycle where they get into, get into sin. They get, God judges them and they repent and they get a, the, delivered by a judge. And then they go back after a few years and fall into sin and go through these cycles. And they do that through several judges. And then they get a king and we see them do the same thing generations of kings they have been a rebellious people always have been a rebellious people Same judge, yeah until we get to this part where ezekiel is and god said i'm sorry i'm not even at this point even they had repented god was not listening because there always comes the point where god says enough is enough he did it bef at after 1500 years after creation and the flood came he says, I've had enough of man. I'm going to get rid of them. And he saved Noah and his family. We're going to see at the end of this age, whenever that is, and I think it's closer, close, that he's going to say, I've had enough of it. The judgment's coming. And we end up in the book of Revelation with all the 21 judgments that are going to fall upon this world. And all the judgments. And remember, we, when we did the book of Revelation, and I've been saying over and over again, God's purpose in those judgments is not to destroy everybody, even though that is going to be what happens. It's to draw people back to him, even though he knows they're not going to do it. God's judgments are never just out of maliciousness. He's trying to say, I'm judging you, come back. But as it says here, they have eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. Even though they're seeing all this judgment, they will not respond. 
And we want to be careful that we don't get too judgmental of the Israelites because we oftentimes do the same things. We get into sin and, we, and God starts real gentle. He'll put, a, he'll put us on our daily reading something about the sin or he'll have a pastor mention it in a message or, a, or we'll hear it on the radio or a song or, or something and we'll hear this, you know, you shouldn't be doing this and it's really gentle, it's really soft. And if we pay attention and listen like we should, <laughs> we repent and God says, good job. <laughs> Otherwise, we get the punishment that comes along for the disobedience in that area. And we do the same thing all the time. A lot of times, and I've, I've heard people go, well, how do the Israelites do that? Well, how do we do it? Knowing God's graciousness, knowing God's provisions, knowing what he does, we overlook it because we want to overlook it, basically. Because we want to enjoy our sin so much that we're willing to overlook the sin that, and the judgments that God's sending our way. Until they get so severe that either they get our attention or he takes us home whichever it's going to be. And many times Israel never learned their lessons. And we sometimes don't learn our lessons. And I'm absolutely sure that there are people who have gone home early because they have not learned their lesson. Because they're just so disobedient that they're not going to change. And God does this to individuals. He also does it to nations. And we're full of history of the nations, watching nations being judged for their sins and being brought down, and he does it for both. And we, as Christians, need to pray, number one, for ourselves, that we don't fall into these temptations and, and get trapped into our, to our blindness. Because it's easy for us to have eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear if we're not going to pay attention. And it's easy to come to church and get into that place because we can get a very hard heart in church because we hear something so often and ignore it that we stop hearing it and this is something that happens we can do it the people we're talking to it the lost world does it a lot and they just hear the message so much and they just close their ears to it because they don't want to hear it and unless god does a miracle in some of their lives they will never hear there are people who will never hear because they've rejected the message so many times already that god says okay they've hardened their hearts pharaoh hardened his heart and then at various points it said God hardened his heart it's a, a, to, because he'd already hardened, Pharaoh had hardened his heart so many times. At the end of Israel's days, or Judah's days to be precise, their hearts were hardened. They wouldn't listen. They had Jeremiah preaching to them. They had Ezekiel preaching to them. They had all these preacher, uh, prophets giving them prophecies and they weren't listening. And we want to be careful because it's very easy to harden our heart if we're not wanting to hear. They have eyes and ears, uh, for, for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, son of man, prepare your stuff for removing and remove in by day in their sight. And, they shall, and you shall remove from your place to another place in their sight that they may consider, though they be rebellious. So he's telling him, go, son of man, get basically bags and boxes, pack your stuff up for, for moving. And this moving is really specifically a move of going into exile. So it's not going to be go get a loading van and fill it up. It's get whatever you can in, a, in, a, in what you can carry at one time. Because that's what they're going into exile. They're not, they're not going in with carts of stuff. They're going in whatever they can carry on their back. And he says, you're to get ready to, for this moving and you're to move by day in their sight. And you're just basically move from one place to another. And it's a picture of what is coming to the rest of the people. Because while a large portion of the people are in Babylon already, the king, and this is a king that Nebuchadnezzar set up, not, not, uh, not the original king before all of this. And Nebuchadnezzar had some troubles with the kings. He, he ended up having to put in three kings before he finally said, that's it, I'm done with them, I'm taking them, taking them away. So, and uh, we're getting ready to see the prophecy of the last king of Israel, of Judah, and the prophecy that's related to him, if we get that far tonight. <laughs> but he says, you're to move in their sight. Basically, the idea was do something that's going to make them ask questions. They're going to see you, you know, they're going to ask you, what are you doing, why you're doing it. 
and he's hoping that they will consider, even though a re rebellious uh, family, that they would, number one, ask the question, and then get the answer that God's going to give them. And uh, this is basically, we've talked about lifestyle evangelism, and this, the picture he's doing is kind of lifestyle evangelism. He's living something in front of them, hoping that they'll ask a question. Now, he's going to be told what to say and everything, but, you know, we want to look at that. And in verse 4, And you shall bring forth your stuff by day in their sight, as, as stuff for removing, and you shall go forth at evening in their sight, as they that go forth in captivity. So he's saying you're to move your stuff and then you're to then be moving again without your stuff, just as a captivity, because this is what Israel did. They kept, they were ready to move. And if you've read through Jeremiah and through Second uh, Kings, we saw that Judah was told by Jeremiah, the king was told, stay here, be submitted, and you're going to get to stay in your land. And what did they decide to do? They packed up and started going to Egypt. And he said, don't go to Egypt. It's not where God's telling you, just stay here and just get ready for it. You're, you're under captivity, just be, be submitted. They, run, they start running for Jerusalem, from, from Jerusalem to Egypt. They get overtaken, and many of them get killed and, and disciplined in the process. And they'd been told, just stay. Just stay. Again, how many times do we as Christians in the middle of hardships try to run away from the, what God's trying to teach us? All of us have been there at some point where we try to go away from whatever he's trying to teach us and run away from it. Sometimes physically running away from it. To go to another town or, or state because things are just so bad that we don't want to go through it with whatever it is that he's trying to teach us where we're at. Uh, hear messages you don't want to hear in a church because they're convicting you and decide, well, this pastor is just not the pastor I want to be abiding under and, go and, and run from that church to another church. We have a name for it, church hopping. You, you stick around a church for, for six months, a year, two years, three years, and all of a sudden, as soon as you don't like what you're hearing, probably what you need to be hearing, you, you, jump, you jump ship. And that's not saying everybody who leaves a church or moves to go someplace else is wrong. There are times when it's time to move to another church. It's time to move to a different place. But we need to make sure that God telling us, not that we're just trying to run away from conviction or, or hard times or trials. And this is, and I have a rule of thumb in my life is, if things are going really rough and bad, that's not the time to be making major decisions to move churches or to move jobs or to move anything. Because you're not taking and putting God in there, you're saying, is it time just to get out from underneath the pressure? How can I get out from underneath the pressure? And that's not the time to be making big decisions in your life, period. Especially, even a decision that might be as simple as changing churches. Because God is trying to teach us something. And usually we as humans don't like the idea of being taught. We like to run. It's time to run. <laughs> Got to go somewhere else. It's getting too hot in this kitchen. This pastor is getting too close to home in my life. Out of here and, and go somewhere else. And that's not the time to be doing it. When we go through a little bit of a trial period, that's not the time to be jumping out of the, out of the boat to find a new place. God is usually trying to teach us something when we feel it, the pressures bounding on us. And we need to be looking at it. Now, it could be that you made enough mistakes that you have to get out of the situation, but make sure you're listening to God. It's very important that we listen to God. And I'm going to tell you, in my personal experience, it's been very hard to listen to God when I'm under a lot of pressure to be able to make decisions. Some of my worst decisions have been made when I made a decision in the middle of the pressure, to, and usually that meant trying to get out of the pressure. And when I made the decision, and then I look back on it and say, that was a terrible decision that I made because I wasn't listening to God. And the whole reason I was moving, you know, making the move was to get out of whatever it was that I was feeling pressured by. So we want to be looking at this. And he's saying, this is a rebellious house. You know, pack your stuff up, move in front of them so they will be able to see, that they will be able to see and ask these questions. And then 
in verse 5 is kind of interesting. Dig through, dig you through the wall in their sight and carry out thereby. Now, he's being told to dig through the wall of a house. And remember, these houses are made basically out of mud, mud and mud bricks. They're not the strongest bricks out that they live in. Uh, kind of like adobe bricks and everything. Once they harden, they do harden. But once you get past that dried out part, they're easy. They're pretty easy to dig through, you know, especially when they're new. <laughs> he's told dig through. And this word on the idea of digging is dig through as a burglar to get in. And he's being said, take things out of the house. And it's, again, that idea of captivity. You're going to be put into captivity and somebody else has taken your stuff. And this happens when they went into the promised land, they were told you're going to win these battles and you're going to own houses and wells and, and animals and farms and orchards and all the stuff that you are going to own that you did not have to labor for. Captivity is like that. When countries were captive, they were then lived in, the best houses were lived in by the military generals and they were made into governors, mansions and stuff. And he's saying, this is the picture. He's really picturing this whole idea of captivity to them. And the idea that they're going to, to uh, be seen. And then in verse 6, says, In their sight you shall bear it upon your shoulders. You shall carry it forth in twilight. You shall cover your face that you shall not see the ground. For I have set you as a sign unto the house of Israel. So he's to carry the burden on his back. And then it says he's to cover his eyes. He's to be go blindfolded. And... There's going to be, this is a picture that he's going to, and we're going to see that in just a moment, what he's picturing with this blindfold. But he's to be blindfolded is it so that he cannot see, and specifically not see the ground, but he's not to be able to see at all in, in this uh, section. Verse 7, and then, I did so as I was commanded. I brought forth the stuff by day and the stuff for captivity, and in the evening I dug through the wall with my hands, and I brought it forth in the twilight, and I bare it upon my shoulders in their sight. And in, and in the morning came the word of the Lord unto me, saying, so he was obedient. This is one thing that's kind of amazing as we read through this story, is the obedience that Ezekiel has. Remember back a while ago he was told to lay on his side and lay toward this tile and and lay siege to the tile, and it was a picture of Jerusalem, and then he was to lay on the other side. And another time he was told that, that uh, his food, he was to, to go gather dung to, to make a fire and cook over the dung. And that one he kind of bulked at. He goes, God, I've never touched any unclean thing or done any unclean thing. So God let him get away with not doing that one. Uh, but he was told to do several things that were very strange in our look. And he's been obedient all the way through. He's a very obedient man. And even when it comes to doing strange things. And he gets to do lots of strange things in here. Kind of like, the, like Hosea. Hosea was another one of those interesting prophets, you know, told to go marry a harlot so that he could be shown, so that he could show by his lifestyle the mercy and the repentance and the acceptance of God. And the harlot represented Israel and he represented God in their life and he kept having to go buy her back because she would come into his family and then she would go back into her harlotry and then she'd be enslaved and he would end up having to go purchase her back and redeem her just as God and it was the picture and I've always thought how tough that would have been you know hey mom and dad God is telling me to go marry a harlot <laughs> uh, I can just picture that that discussion with the with the family uh, are you insane you know you think God's telling you to do that how many times has God stepped into somebody's life and tell them that something's going to happen in their life that's going to be basically earth-shattering to their life you think about Mary you know, Jesus' mother. Uh, you're going to have a child, and I know you're not married, but this is my child. And, you, you know, and uh, imagine that conversation with mom and dad. Uh, mom and dad, I'm pregnant, but it's God's child. Yeah, sure, Mary. Uh, we all know that we would really believe that if our daughter came into us and told us that story. You know, and Joseph didn't believe her. And I can tell you the, the rest of the town didn't believe her. No matter how much she was going to be honest, no matter how much Joseph told her the same thing, they told him the same thing, the, the angel of the Lord came to me. They were not going to be a really accepted couple because they, were, they had not followed the, the rules by, by, by sight. Even though they had followed all the rules, but by sight they had not followed the rules. 
This is something that we look at. God oftentimes steps into our life and our life gets upset. (laughs) Jesus said, I've come to bring a sword into people's lives and set family against family, brother against father, father against son, daughter against mother, mother against daughter. Truth causes problems in our lives oftentimes. And it doesn't mean that we're not to be peaceful or anything through it, but God really comes in oftentimes and and chaos comes into the process because he changes what the world does and what righteousness does. And once you're being righteous, once you're following righteousness, everything else is, you're out of sync with the world and problems happen. And God does this often. But it was adult, she was considered as an adulteress and Jesus was considered, and it's, it's, in one place, the Pharisees, when he said something to them about knowing his father and all that, what they said back to him was, we know who our father was. In other words, they're going, you don't know who your father is, so we know that you know, you're impure. They were basically insulting him. We, we know that you don't know who your father is, even though you're saying your father in heaven. You know, we know that you don't know who your father is. And I've, I've shared with this, Joseph's acceptance of that basically told the family, that, you know, the, the community, this is my child. Because otherwise, as most men would, I don't want anything to do with this woman. She's been playing around behind my back. He, by accepting her, was tacitly, as far as the community was concerned, admitting that they had fooled around for the consummation of their marriage. So they were both kind of painted for the rest of their lives, basically. And so this is something we have to understand. When God comes into the midst of our life and has us do things, it can make us look bad to family, friends, community, because of the obedience that we're following with God, because we're out of step. And if your parents or your family isn't really in step with God, it can be quite an, in, quite an interesting uh, activity. Uh, I've been around churches long enough now. I, I went to a church for a long time, and they really encouraged you to become pastors and, and missionaries. It was just a big push of that particular church to be pastors and missionaries. And in that church, if, you're, if you were raising up kids who didn't want to become a pastor or a missionary, you felt, you felt kind of, well, what's wrong with you, kid? You're supposed, to, you're supposed to do this. But you know, in most churches, if a kid comes back home and says, I want to be a pastor or I want to be a missionary, they're going to hear something like this from their parents. Are you sure you don't want to do something else? You know, do you, you, know you don't want to do that. You know, the greatest thing that they can do is to be in missions work or pastoral. And yet, many in many churches, and I've been in many where, where the parents will try to do everything they can to talk their kids. Well, that needs to be somebody else's kid, not my kid. I don't want my kid to not make money or not, not be whatever, you know, the doctor, lawyer, whatever it is they wanted them to be. This is the problem oftentimes when you get a call from God to do something, there are going to be people who are going to try to talk you out of it, that you know, think you're insane, that uh, how can you make this decision, how can you turn your back on this, that, or the other thing. And God does this. He brings in these problems for us when we're called to follow him. And it's not necessarily our problem, but it's people's acceptance of the, of the problem. Because they look at us and say, we are out of step with them. We're not doing what they would do. We're not doing what the world would do. This is the problem that we have as a Christian church here in America now is we step up and say, God has standards. Adultery is wrong. Fornication is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. We have all these things we say are wrong, and the world does not want to hear it. And so what do they do? They make all kinds of accusations against the church about how unloving we are, how judgmental we are, how out of step we are with the times, following these old fables and rules from from thousands of years ago that we have to evolve with them into the new, new reality. We need to stand with God no matter what the world says, no matter what the world is going to do. And it doesn't mean we're unloving. Matter of fact, the most loving thing you can do is to discipline a child and bring them back into the right so that they don't have the pain in the future. Love is not equal kindness and, and goodness. It means to do what's best for somebody. 
And sometimes what's best for somebody is to be, you know, a little more critical of what they're doing as long as it's loving. And this is very important. You don't go up to you know, somebody and, and just criticize them for the sake of criticizing them because that doesn't work. A uh, story about two, two men preaching, preaching at a church trying to candidate or wanting to be their pastor. And they both preach about hell for two weeks in a row. They get a message about hell. And one guy gets picked and the other guy doesn't. The one guy who didn't get picked, he goes, why didn't you pick me? And they go, well, when you preached, it sounded like you wanted them to go to hell. When he preached, it sounded like he didn't want them to go to hell. Same message, same topic, same, probably the same scriptures overall. But there's that attitude of, I don't want you to go the wrong direction. I love you so much, I'm going to tell you about this, but don't do it, don't go that way. Or as opposed to just getting in your face, wagging your fingers and saying, well, you shouldn't be that way, you're, you're going to get in trouble. And we've all probably experienced these disciplines where somebody's like, and you walk away from some people and go on, wow, I just feel miserable because this person doesn't care. Or you might even got hit harder by the other person, but they cared so much and it came across in their conversation that they cared about you. They didn't want you to suffer. And they might have even been harsher in what they said, but the attitude behind it was nothing but love. And we feel that and we go, okay, <laughs> we, may, we don't like it any better. Uh, we don't like it even if it's in love. We're going to, we, our first initial response in the flesh is to rebel. But usually when we think that, oh, they love us, okay, maybe I need to pay attention to it. I need to pay attention to what they've said because their love came through. And very important on this that God loves us so much, loves us so much that he's not going to let us do wrong things. He's not going to let us get away with doing the wrong. Let's see. Verse 8. And in the morning the, came the word of the Lord unto me, saying, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the, the rebellious house, said unto you, what, what do you? Say you unto them, Thus says the Lord. This burden concerning, concerns the prince of Jerusalem and all the house of Israel that are among them. Shall I say, I am your sign, like as I have done, so shall it be done unto them. They shall be removed and go into captivity. And the prince that is among them shall bear upon his shoulder in the twilight and shall go forth and they shall dig through the wall and carry, the, carry out thereby. And he shall cover his face that he see not the ground with his eyes. My net will also will I spread upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him into Babylon, into the land of the Chaldeans. Yet shall he not see it, and though, though he shall die there. So we're going to look at this, because this is going to be one of those prophecies that made no sense to people that we, that we get to. But he says, say to them, this says the Lord, this burden, this oracle, this, this uh, statement, this prophecy is what that means, concerns the prince of Jerusalem and the house of Israel. Going back into the king, the king that is going to be taken. It says, I am your sign. I am the wonder. I'm the one. I'm giving you an illustration of what this is going to be. And it says, they shall be removed into captivity, and then verse 12, And the prince that shall go among them shall bear on his shoulder in the twilight and go forth, and they shall dig through the wall and carry thereby. And this goes back to what I was saying. They, they left Jerusalem in the middle of the night. They left Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been encircled by Nebuchadnezzar to be captured, and they leave the city. Basically, they went out the gates, dug a hole through the wall, whatever, however you want to look at it. They went through the gate, the side, the side gates, and they made a run for it. They made a run for it, even though they were told, stay. And this is one of those interesting things, because Jeremiah is going to be forced to go. Jeremiah has been told them, you've got to stay here. You've got to stay here. God's, God's going to bless us, you know, keep us here. We'll be safe if we just be obedient and just stay here. And the king and the, and the people forced Jeremiah to go. And Jeremiah is going to be forgiven by, the, by Nebuchadnezzar and, and brought back in and given a place of honor. But... He, he did not want to leave because he knew there was death in the leaving. And it says they cover his face and he could not see. And it says, my net also will I spread upon him and he shall be taken by my snare, the prince of Jerusalem or 
technically the king, but from God's perspective, he's not the king. Even though he's the son of David, he's not really the king as far as the way it was because he was placed there by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar put him there. And then we see this very interesting thing. I will bring him to Babylon to the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. Okay, now if you know your history, which we'll look at the verse in here that, that shows this, uh, when you first hear this, it makes, makes no sense. And there's lots of people who have read this out of context and never, never looked at the history, and they go, well, how can somebody go someplace and not see it and die there and never see it? And I don't know if you know the story, but we're going we're gonna to flip back to 2 Kings for just a moment. It's also in Jeremiah, but we'll read the 2 Kings version of it. 2 Kings 25, verse 4. And the city was broken up, and all the men of the war, war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldeans were against the city around about it, and the king went the way toward the plain. And the army of the Chaldeans pursued after the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army were scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon to Riblah, and they gave judgment upon him. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass and carried him to Babylon. All right, because he was disobedient, he had a lot of problems. The last thing he got to see was his sons being killed. And then they put his eyes out, chained him up, took him to Babylon. So he, ended, he went to Babylon just as, just as Ezekiel said. And Jeremiah also said the same thing, that he would, go to Jer he would be taken to Babylon, but he would never see it. Again, it goes to show how God will prove to be true no matter what. And this is something that is something for us to keep in mind when we read the scriptures and we go, I don't understand how this can be if it's talking about future or even how it could have been in the past because we weren't there to see it. We need to be understanding that God is true. Even when it seems difficult, even when it seems crazy, he is true. When people used to read that in Revelation that a 200 million man army would amass against Israel. You got to think of one thing. Number one, they were reading it before there were 200 million people on the world. And they were looking at it and going, wow, this is really, God is really being figurative in this. Now we look at it and we realize we could put together 200 man, a 200 million person army. That would be a pretty big army. It's still, even by our standards, a very large army. But at least now we can understand how we could put a coalition of nations together and get that many people, especially if it includes China and or Russia, who both have very large armies. So we can say, okay, we can see this now. How many times could it not be seen? Another example I use is when it talks about the two prophets in, the, in Revelation that were, being, that were killed. And it says the whole world watched them and celebrated as they watched them. For generations and generations, that was considered very figuratively. How can the whole world watch this event? Yeah, when we know now, you, you, we could picture a satellite station 24-7, coverage, coverage of the witnesses. We now know how everybody in the world could be watching. They talked about no buying or trading being able to happen without the mark of the beast and, we're, and for years and generations like well how can that be there's just no possible way we now know how easy it would be to say there's no money in this world and you have to use some form of identification chip or identification number on your on your hand yeah we're, we're moving that way we're moving that way very quickly in our in our world the, it all sounds good and when it finally comes down to the end times when this stuff all happens it's going to seem purely logical decision to follow these things that are coming. The, but the major point is many generations ago, or not even many generations ago in some things, even when we were young, the idea of being able to watch the, well, the whole world watch the, these prophets was unheard of. We couldn't even see things happening live on the news. You know, they would report it because they had the radio and the telegraph, and then you'd see the moving pictures that go with it the next day if, they, if it was a big enough story. 
And we're all old enough to remember those days when that's how you got news. It was reported by somebody sitting there talking about it, and they might put a stock picture behind them, you know, if it was really, if they, it was something they could stock. And then if you, if it was a really big story, you'd see, you'd see the uh, article the next, the next day, you know, the, the pictures. How fast things happen and how easy it is to say, well, God, you don't know what you're talking about. We need to always make sure when God put it in this word, it is true. Verse 14, I will scatter, t I, and I will scatter toward every wind all that are about him to help him and all his bands, and I will draw out the sword after them. This talks back about his army leaving, being scattered, uh, that we just read about. And verse 15, And they shall know that I am the Lord when I shall scatter them among the nations and disperse them into the countries. Now we're switching back to Israel. He's several times now in the last couple chapters, he's talked about scattering Israel. And in previous ones, he says that they're going to maintain who they are. And this is the amazing thing. When we look at Israel being scattered amongst all the nations, they maintained their identity overall. They got flavored a little bit over the you know, different places that they were in, but for the most part, they maintained who they were. They stayed and they did their Saturday services and took the days off. Whether, whether people uh, took a day off or not, they took their day off and they worshiped on Saturdays and they, and they practiced to the best of their ability their, their religion and they kept it together. They practiced Passover, they practiced uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would practice Hanukkah, which isn't a biblical holiday, but they practiced it. As to the best of their ability, they followed these practices and they put it in front of their family. The whole reason they celebrated Passover was the celebration of God delivering them from Egypt and bringing them into, into the Promised Land. And that story is re reiterated every year to their, to their children. And games are played during Passover to show the, the events. And games are played that actually picture Christ in, in the process, even though they don't know it. The idea of Hanukkah, that God delivered them and did a miraculous thing, keeping the menorah burning for seven days when there wasn't enough oil to burn it for seven days. They had enough oil to burn it for one and God gave a miracle. They, they bring God into so much of what it is and they bring it in front of their kids to say this is what God does for us and we are special because of this. One more verse. Verse 16, but I will leave a few men of them from the sword, from the famine and from the pestilence that they may declare all the abomination among the heathen whither they come, and they shall know that I am the Lord. This group that they're talking about is going to become known as the Samaritans. They're going to be left in the land. They're going to live in their abominations. They're going to live in, away from what is. And then the sad thing is, the Jews who were left in Israel depart from God, <laughs> do not follow Judaism. Those who get scattered <laughs> all through the world <laughs> continue to follow God for the most part. And I'm sure there, people, you know, there were others that you know, did the same thing, but it's kind of an amazing thing. Those who lived in the place where they followed the abominations and ended up turning away from God, they become the Samaritans who don't worship God. They were considered half-breeds by the Jews when they returned. They had formed their own religion that was a mix of local religions and, and Judaism. And those who go out kept Judaism to the best of their ability without a temple. It's kind of an amazing thing when you think about it. Sometimes God is saying, I want you out of your comfort zone so that you will can be dependent upon me and me only. Because when we're left in our comfort zone, what do we end up doing? We, we take comfort in our comfort. You know, it, where, where I'm at, all the wrong things. I'm going to take comfort in what... Mom, I'm, I'm living where mom and dad and, and brother and sister and aunts and uncles, everybody's here. Here's my support system. I don't need to depend on God. Not that it's a bad thing to be in that, but if you turn around and you start depending on everything but God, it's the wrong reasons, the wrong things. We need to continually focus on God and say, God, you are my all in all. You are everything I need. I cannot get by without you. We, we sing the song, uh, you are the air that I breathe, you are, you are my everything. You know, do we really think of God in that way in our life? Is he, am I so desperate that I could not get by without God? 
Hopefully we are, but I'm going to tell you, even me, I'm not that desperate for him most, quite, uh, quite frequently, to be honest. There are times when I really am. There's times when I'm on a, on really that close to him. But for the most part, I'm not that desperate for God. And that's sad to say. It's challenging to be that way. But we do need to really start looking at him and say, God, I, am, I, am de- I cannot do anything without you. There's times, we've probably all been there where there's times when we feel that close to him, that God, I just know that I need you for everything. But we really need to be starting each day realizing, God, I need you more than anything. I need your word more than anything. I need your guidance more than anything. I cannot do anything without you because I know that the, when, I'm, when I am that way with God, everything goes right and goes smooth. When I'm trying to do things in my own decisions and my own way of thinking, Things go wrong. Go wrong all the time when I try to do it my way without paying attention to him. So we just want to be able to say, God says, I want you to know that I am the Lord. He still wants to do that for us. He is the Lord, and he wants to show us that he's Lord, and he's going to show us. We can either do it voluntarily and have it the easy way. God, I am so desperate for you. I, I need you. I want you. Or he's going to say, let me show you how much you need me. As he lets us, lets problems get into our life. And this is basically going back to what I said Sunday. Nothing happens to us unless God allows it to happen to us. And we can take comfort in that. Sometimes we're getting it because we deserve it, because we were not paying attention. Other times it's just a test to say, do you, do you believe? But either way, we... Our dependence is on him. And if we just hold on to him and say, okay, God, whether I deserve it or it's a test, I'm going to hold on to you because you are my way out. He is our way out. He is so much more than anything out there. On Sunday night, they they quoted from uh, Psalm 19. uh, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The, the commandments of the Lord are... Then I go jump down to verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Do we desire God's word more than anything else? His commandments, his teachings. It is so vitally important that we get to that place. That his word is what I need. His word is what I have to have. I want it I want it more than anything else. When we're at work, we spend eight hours a day or more trying to earn gold. <laughs> How much time do we spend in God's word for something more precious than gold? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, help us to always look to you for our answers and and know that you are what we need you are what we need to desire lord you are the only way to heaven and that we recognize that we're sinners and accept your salvation and come to you for salvation and we just thank you for all of that in your son's name amen Amen.